Hello and welcome to IPE Leaders and Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. I'm Liam Kennedy, Editorial Director at IPE, and together with my colleagues from the editorial team, I will be hosting regular conversations with senior figures in the institutional investor community, the people stewarding billions of long-term capital. Leaders and Investment will range across beliefs, objectives, investment philosophy, strategy and outlook, capturing diversity of thinking towards mainstream and alternative investments, both liquid and illiquid. Our conversations will dive into investment governance, strategic and tactical asset allocation, implementation, in-house teams, manager hiring and firing, sustainability, and how to deal with partners and stakeholders. Over the course of our conversations, We hope we'll be creating a valuable library of downloadable insights into what motivates both individuals, teams, boards and trustees as they set about achieving their long-term goals with a view to improving the retirement outcomes of hundreds of millions of pension holders. To access all episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, or you can find us on leading podcast platforms including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, if you like what you hear, do tell friends and colleagues, and please let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. This episode of Leaders and in Investment is sponsored by PGIM. What do you see on the horizon? At PGIM, we can help you rise to the challenges of today, drawing on deep expertise across the world's public and private markets. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today. In today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Timo Leutoniemi, CEO of VER, also known as the Finnish State Pension Fund. Based in Helsinki and managing some 22 billion of assets, VER isn't a traditional occupational pension scheme, so it doesn't have a liability profile comprising actuarially determined cash flows. Rather, as a buffer fund, it exists to balance state pension expenditure and to help the state to prepare for financing future pensions. In practice, this means it's the vehicle for the partial funding of the Finnish state pension obligations for its own employees. As a state entity, its mandate and investment parameters are set by the Finnish government, for instance by predetermining the investment limits, which you can read about in detail on VER's website. For example, at least 30% of assets must be invested in fixed income, and no more than 60% in equities. As a buffer fund, it isn't subject to solvency requirements. Now, I'd point out that VER is incredibly transparent about itself, and I'd encourage listeners to look at VER's website for themselves because it's a mine of information. But in this conversation, I hope we'll be filling in a lot of the gaps to get a real qualitative sense of what makes VER tick as a pension fund. Returning to today's guest, Timo rejoined VER as CEO in 2019 after a stint of nearly five years at the Single Resolution Board in Brussels, where he was deputy chair. Prior to first joining the State Pension Fund in 2003 as Managing Director, he worked in various roles in banking, including at the Finnish banking group Mandatum. He's also a respected commentator and blogger, and I certainly encourage listeners to read his prolific output. Last not least, Timo was the 2022 recipient of the coveted IPE Pension Fund Leader of the Year Award. So Timo, congratulations on the 20th anniversary of your first joining VR even if you moved to Brussels for part of those 20 years. It's obviously an organisation you have a strong affinity with. I'd like to know more about the DNA of VER as an organisation. 
Once upon a time, so to speak, there was a blank piece of paper to interpret the mandate that the organization was given. How did it go about that? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this broadcast. So 20 years at the state pension fund is a long time, but it's also in line with the mandate of a pension fund, which is long term. So state pension fund was established already over 30 years ago, but 2000 was the culminating period when the new law was passed and the organization, meaning independent organization, was established. So I started as CEO in 2003 and I was the full-time CEO. So in terms of building up the organization and how we were sort of setting us up, the key elements are that we are managing this 22 billion of money. At the same time, our funding ratio target was set at 25% of the liabilities and we reached that target two years ago. So now the law was changed again because from time to time one needs to calibrate the equations and uh, this new law states also that in terms of our perspective we can be a long-term investor even though our cash flows will be heavily negative in the coming 10 years because our mandate is first of all to prefund for the government and now stabilize the government pension expenditure. So we are now in the stabilization phase of the fund. So when did you first set your investment beliefs? So we started crafting those investment beliefs around 12 years ago, and then we published those after a few years. And we have revised those investment beliefs a few times along the way to make those a bit simpler. But the key elements have been steadily there. And the key elements relate to being a long-term investor, believe in our in the risk premiums above the risk-free rate, and also believe in the diversification, market efficiency, and sustainability elements. So these are the key elements in our investment beliefs. And I think those resemble our thoughts as a long-term investor. There may be elements which are absolutely changing from year to year. And if I just name one example of that, is the rate of interest. We didn't believe a few years back that interest rate products would give a diversification element. And that was clearly seen last year when the correlation between equities and fixed income was very high. But right now, the diversification is back. So bonds provide that diversification element. And just a, in terms of investment beliefs, I think the steady investment belief that diversification has the benefits. But from time to time, those benefits might be higher or lower. How is the asset allocation set and who sets the detailed allocation? So we... In terms of the organization, we are responsible for providing the input for the board of directors who is setting the strategic asset allocation. So we work throughout the year and especially towards springtime, we start to work with a consultant and internal organization. Uh, what are the expected returns for various asset classes and what are the tentative asset weights uh, for roughly 12 15 asset classes in total. Then we run through various optimization calculations. But at the end of the day, it's a judgment of ourselves and our board and, and consultative investment committee to set up the weights. And typically, my 
own attitude is that the outside help is absolutely needed. However, typically the perspectives may change. Are we setting up the framework for a few years time? Are we setting the framework for 10 years time? And uh, certainly there's various knowledge and expertise and experiences which are within the organization, how we make the changes gradual in terms of asset allocation. So, but the process is during the autumn months, so September, October, November, we are setting the, the next year's investment plan and, uh, and next year's the strategic asset allocation. So something you're very much involved with right now. Absolutely. We are just in the midst of, of that process. And uh, I must say at this stage that we won't do radical changes in, in some of the asset mixtures. We still believe that risk premiums are positive. Of course, we have to be and have been considering what kind of impact this higher interest rate have for the risk premiums. But all in all, I, I mean the believer of steady changes and gradual changes. And as an example, when we started our equity allocation already 2000-2001 from zero, it was the decision by the board before my time to increase the allocation from zero to 40% in four years time. So the gradual changes and time diversification has its benefits and typically that has paid out. So in my thinking, the strategic asset allocation is a long-term matter and we just renewed beginning of this year our strategy framework where we explicitly have now two layers of let's say strategic thinking and and the first layer is that that we start from a very neutral global dummy portfolio if i may call it that way and then strategic asset allocation needs to be better than the global neutral benchmark we have been doing that for years already but now we put that also in the paper okay so let's drill down into the portfolio in practice um, after building up your equity exposure you dialed it down in 2021 what was the major driver behind that decision there were a few reasons uh, the first reason was that we had increased our equity allocation to 45 liquid equities to 45 percent and then also on top of that, we had private equity infrastructure, which was at the top roughly 55% uh, or nearly 55%. But then at the time, we saw that there were a lot of red lights regarding valuations. And that was the lowest peak or, or, or uh, regarding the, say, the lowest interest rate environment, what we have experienced for ages. And that was also a time period when there were possibly, I would name a bubble. There was a bubble in interest rate levels. There was a bubble in equities. And now we can see that possibly there was a bubble also regarding real estate market. But anyway, th there was an overvaluation period. And, and that late August 2021 and early September 21, we decided to decrease our equity of, uh, proportion by five percentage points. There was also secondary reasons which related to our funding ratio. We were reaching the funding ratio. We thought that we may be reaching the funding ratio of 25%. And we knew that if we would reach that, then there will be a, a change in the law, etc. So we wanted to partially safeguard 
that reaching of the 25% also in the end of 2021. So these were the main main reasons and, and that has helped since. So we have not considered heavily investing back to equities since then. So we have been quite happy to have this public equities proportion now at 40%. Can you envisage that some currently passive mandates could be reconstituted as active mandates and vice versa? It has been a constant evaluation in terms of activity and, and passive elements. I think through the years during my time, we had had a bias towards value investing and then also small cap investing. And even though the technology stocks have performed splendidly during the few years, uh, there is still an argument in favor of value investing. The tilt is not huge, but I think it's still there. And, and that has been one of the elements uh, why we have been either using the active elements, because typically small cap and value includes active tilt, but also active managers. We have been reducing the cost basis through the years, especially in equities. Uh, the costs have been coming down uh, steadily. And uh, we are, of course, every year examining the cost basis for all our external managers and, and shall be doing that in the future also. But it's a this activity and passive investing. One could also analyze the matter by stating that the benchmark choices, what we are making, we could have chosen another benchmark also. So there are multiple various benchmarks which one can use for any given market, like European market. And there could be tracking errors between the benchmarks. So the activity around the benchmarks is acceptable if the risk is not uh, too, too large. But of course, we have had and, and have been heavily user of index-linked products. So absolutely, that has been one of the big themes for us during this time. How have you managed the denominator effect over the last couple of years? And what's your approach to rebalancing? Well, it, rebalancing is an it's a very important matter to us. Uh, we used to have a rebalancing of the benchmark portfolio on a monthly basis in early times. And, and I knew some investors who had even a daily rebalancing of the portfolios. We have from time to time analyzed that thoroughly. And certainly it seems to be so that there are arguments that the longer rebalancing one has for the benchmark portfolio, and the longer rebalancing frame one has for the exact portfolio, the better. But we won't expand that up to one year. So we have chosen a compromise of quarterly basis of rebalancing of the benchmark portfolio, meaning that if there's a deviation to our current portfolio uh, of large enough deviation, then we may rebalance our portfolio ourselves also. But if the discrepancy is less than 1%, we won't execute a, a rebalancing of the portfolio. We we would rather let the profits run in terms of those markets which are performing better. It, it has typically been that those markets tend to perform the next quarter or next month still better. So we would rather have the profits run and then execute some kind of rebalancing when the 
deviation is large enough. Then there has been crisis moments, which are absolutely of importance to us. We were a heavy buyer of equities 2008, after the 2008 uh, financial crisis because of the rebalancing motivation. So we had a underweight in equities if, when the equity prices came down September, October 2008. We had a huge motivation to buy equities and that underweight was in the magnitude of 2 billion euros, if I recall the numbers right. And then we executed, we didn't execute fully and immediately because we felt that the risks were there for various scenarios. But st we still were a heavy buyer of buying more than 1 billion euros of equities in, in a short time, time frame, which turned out to be a good decision. And, and that was exactly a way to show also that this framework of having a strategic asset allocation rebalancing framework which is sufficiently long but not too long and the motivation to purchase or sell uh, risky assets if those deviate from the benchmarks is a good structure and it's a workable structure and these crisis moments which come from time to time uh, give opportunities. So with the return of yield to the market what does that mean for your allocation between fixed income and private markets? We have been steadily increasing the non-liquid part or private market proportion in the portfolio from zero to current 19% for non-liquids plus the hedge funds uh, on top of that, so 24% in total. And uh, that has been a steady program. So it was a steady program that we felt that we were having an underweight in those markets and therefore we didn't time the market. We were on a planning basis trying to increase that exposure and have been doing and are, we are still doing that somewhat. The negative cash flows what we are having in our portfolio in the coming 10 years is a matter which has of importance to us and therefore we are currently analyzing this year, next year, in the, in the coming few years that how the returns have been behaving as we are approaching these higher negative cash flows and that will determine that how much non-liquid assets we shall have in the portfolio in the coming decade uh, but so far we are absolutely continuing with the programs uh, higher interest rates put a small question mark for some of the private assets but that's another matter and that needs to be considered if this higher rate environment continues uh, further towards next year. So what will the shape of the private market portfolio look like in coming years, given this scenario that you've sketched out? Well, in our portfolio, we have following assets. We have private equity of roughly 6%, then infrastructure 4%, private credit of 3 to 4%, uh, real estate 4 to 5%. And then hedge funds a bit over four percent. So, so these are the allocations, and we were one of the, let's say, first institutional investors having an exposure in private credit. We thought about that private credit market immediately after financial crisis already, and, and we started watching that. But in terms of asset allocation as a separate asset class, that came as a separate asset class to us in 2013. 
but we were already executing some private credit transactions and exposures before that. But then when that was built to few percentage points, then we had that as a separate asset class. And that has certainly been one of the asset class which is of interest also going forward with a higher rate. And in terms of the hedging and risk management part of your investment team, what risks are you hedging there? Is that this is about market risk and not hedging liabilities because you don't have a liability stream? Yeah, exactly. And and the first hedging, what we are doing is the currencies. We introduced that uh, some 15 years ago uh, when we had higher exposures outside the euro area. And uh, equity markets, we keep the currency risks open. Uh, in the fixed income market, we typically hedge our non-euro area risks. There are some exceptions, but typically that's hedged. And then in private markets, depending on the on the asset class, we, we may be doing hedging depending on the riskiness of the currency currency in relation to the, the riskiness of the asset. So that's the number one hedging, what we are doing in the portfolio. Then from time to time, we have hedges related to equities. And uh, for example, last year, we executed five smaller hedging transactions or hedging moments. And we timed right uh, four out of the five hedging moments. Uh, but of course, the impact on the total portfolio has been marginal because we still implement the strategic asset allocation as the main rule and the deviations to the strategic asset allocation needs to be thoroughly thought through and, and we don't want to take extraordinary risks against that because being out of the market when the markets are rising heavily uh, and strongly we want to avoid that moment that we would be out, out of the market. So overall, what gives VER an edge? We can be quite free in terms of executing our strategy. There are limits, certain limits set by the Ministry of Finance, but within those, those limits, the organization, board of directors and, and the consultative investment committee have the full powers in terms of deciding which asset classes to implement and what are the weights between the asset classes. I think that for a person like me from economical background and finance background, it's an excellent area to work on because then we, we don't have other motivations than the good return and good return to risk ratio. Can we turn now to look at your team, your slim team of around 28 people? And I'd like to do a thought experiment. Imagine that you were asked to address the brightest graduates from the Helsinki School of Economics and imagine they have offers, say, from Goldman and KKR. How would you convince them to stay in Helsinki and work for VER? We have a very flat organization. So, like I said, we are very professionally oriented as an organization. And if a young person comes to us and work for us, he will be right in the middle of decision-making and all these asset classes, which are within 20 meters or so for where he's sitting. So everything is close by. And when then we openly, we are very open in terms of our discussions regarding asset allocation and also investment products if needed uh, internally. And we have weekly, let's say two weekly meetings where we discuss 
investment markets with more or less nearly the whole front office and, and organization. So there's a constant flow of information and, and then we have an open office where people can discuss. Of course, nowadays one has this remote work possibility also and, and we are ex executing, I would say that the average would be two to three times uh, per week at the office or the other way around, uh, depending on the matters and, and typically it's Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays when people are at the office. So how do you determine what's managed in-house versus what's managed externally? It will be expertise-driven and also complexity-driven and also driven by the fact that if the products are available. There has been a constant development of investment products through the years. If I look back when we started non-liquid investments, there were, for example, when we wanted to make a European-wide uh, real estate investment first time doing so, and we wanted to execute the first investment via a fund-of-fund -fund product, there was no one offering the fund fund of fund product. So we had to create that together with one manager. So we were actively involved in creation of that fund of fund. Of course, we have since then moved away from fund of funds, but that was the beginning. So we have tried various internal use of resources and external managers. And I think we have a quite a nice balance because most of the team members you know, at our office have worked already for multiple years. So the balance in terms of internal expertise and external expertise is well in line. Currently, equity is a good example where we execute directly the Nordic equities. And, and of course, then some small cap investments, we may be using funds. Elsewhere, we are using only funds or ETFs and thereby getting the exposure quickly and also getting the flexibility. In, in fixed income world, it's a bit more mixture of course, one needs to make more direct investments in fixed income. One cannot use index products so much in fixed income. One needs to be choosing the instruments. But there also we have in investment grade and high yield and emerging market, we have both direct and fund products in parallel. So and that, that was worked uh, well in our organization. So I'd like to change gear a little bit. Um, so could we talk about your CV and uh, what makes you tick as an investor? Um, what were your interests at uh, Helsinki School of Economics? So I started studying economics as my main subject and I was really, really keen on the subject. So certainly at that moment of time, if I just name one example, I went to my professor and asked that how to get rid of the pollution in the world. And he gave me two books. And I read those books, especially the other one, which was written by Eric Damen, a Swedish professor. And by reading that book, since then I have not thought about how to solve the world's pollution problems. The execution is only missing, <laughs> meaning that taxation on, on externalities will be the answer. So that vision has been on my mind since. But in terms of economics, my master's thesis was actually a timely topic already 40 years since. Uh, and that was an exogenous money supply shocks and money demand. So quite a timely topic even now when 
money shocks have been around with quantitative easing and helicopter drops in the US, uh, where typically happens that, that extra money will be in the deposits for some time, and then gradually that will be consumed or invested. And that is exactly what ha- took place. My PhD thesis was a totally different because at the end of my economic studies, I started to be interested in finance. I, I was working summers in a brokerage company, and then I started to get interested in finance. There was an excellent professor teaching Prilly Myers finance principles of finance book, which I also taught myself also later in, in the School of Technology. And my PhD thesis there was uh, capital structure decisions by corporations. So so that was more on rights issues and, and how corporations are raising equity capital. And then also various voting share issues, which were very timely at that time, 30 years ago. What were your priorities when you embarked on your career? I started as a financial analyst in a brokerage company. And at the same time, I was also doing my PhD besides my work. So I was a financial analyst analyzing convertibles, loans with options, and also these multiple shares, real estate, investment trusts, etc. And then company analysis, banking analysis, uh, retail market analysis. And then I was part of this Union Bank of Finland doctorate program, which was an excellent program and, and supported by the bank. And uh, they brought the best U.S. professors on finance to Helsinki. And I didn't need to go anywhere. And then I was able to combine work with the studies. So this analytical framework carries on even nowadays. So, of course, that early stage of my career was was on analyst uh, side. And then I was involved with initial public offerings, various rights issues, which was one of the basis why I did my PhD on rights issues, because I was at my office, I was sitting 10 meters from the best uh, files regarding public announcements of rights issues. So that was the basis why I got interested in the topic of that time. And then, so then you made the leap into institutional investment, into managing pension money. So what tempted you into that world? Well, that was a journey in between I was investment banker doing corporate finance and then at one stage I was responsible for global international portfolio with sub-managers in Zurich, uh, Tokyo and, and New York. And then I was also managing director in a stock exchange listed investment company uh, for a few years, which was investing in, in Nordic markets. So these were the asset manager roles which I had before. And then I was in investment banking. And then there was a moment when The state pension fund was hiring a CEO, a managing director. And uh, first I saw the announcement, but I, I didn't think about it. But the second time I saw it, then I thought that, okay, that looks really interesting. And then I got into this world. And so after a few years at VER, you moved to Brussels. Did you get a tap on the shoulder to make that move? Well, that was interesting because I was looking a little bit around in terms of I wanted to do a short career out internationally. And then I saw vacancy announcement in Financial Times. I saw it once. I didn't look thoroughly. 
Then I saw the second time the same announce vacancy announcement. And I, then I thought that, all right, I have a background in investment banking, PhD in corporate capital structure decisions, and then asset management or running a fund for a long time. Then I thought that I have the ingredients needed for that position. So I applied by myself. And then it was a th- long process in the autumn of 2014 uh, and then the European Parliament Committee and, and the Parliament decided on the matter and I became a vice chair for Single Resolution Board. It was a five-year fixed term, non-renewable, and it was really interesting to see, of course, from how a EU agency works. There are over 40 EU agencies overall. And of course, the single resolution board was the largest one in terms of the balance sheet because we were collecting or setting up this single resolution fund, which we started from zero. We started collecting the amounts from the banking industry. So the fund was set up in terms of if, if there would be a need for use of that fund in relation to a resolution decisions, then that fund would be there for the use. During my time, we collected over 30 billion euros. And since then, now it has grown to over 70 billion euros. And it 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 will be fulfilled with its mandate of being collecting at least 1% of covered deposits in the euro area towards end of this year. And then luckily I was able that our... Board of Directors at State Pension Fund, they gave me absence of leave for that time. So therefore I was able to come back after that uh, fixed period. So the Single Resolution Board was very much one of the institutions created after the great financial crisis. We've had some pressures on the banking system recently. So your experience in Brussels must be something that you bring to bear as an investor as you think about these external events. Absolutely. Of course, these events which have been taking place during this last year have been quite severe. But all of those, of course, have been mainly outside your area. So there's been interesting to follow what has been taking place. The first crisis which I detect was the crisis in, in energy markets. The second one was the UK LDI pension uh, fund crisis. And the third one of the the Silicon Valley Bank crisis, and then Signature Bank, and then Credit Suisse Bank. I named these five because these are the ones where public backstops were used. So typically, you have crises, you have swings in the market, you have crashes, you have various elements. But but then, when public authorities or governments or even central banks, when they act in extraordinary manner then we know that there is something more serious taking place. And that was the case in these five cases. And, and therefore, of course, having this background, it, it was very interesting to follow what U.S. authorities have been executing, both in the governmental side and then also central banking side and FDIC. And my understanding, to wrap up that crisis, I would say that one of the elements there which has been not fully thought through yet is the fair value thinking and how to approach the fair values in banking. So I think that's an area where certainly U.S. authorities need to work further.
So we're now starting to look at the period of uh, low rates following the great financial crisis, um, perhaps as a historical anomaly. And you formulated the question that many investors now face in one of your recent blogs um, about the rise in rates. And will that lead to lower risk premium or higher returns? What are your own views on this question? My own views, I had a tentative thought that that possibly higher rates mean that there, there could be an lower expected risk premium for few years time. How long is that few years? Because long term, I don't think the risk premiums will would, would change much. But short term, two, three years time period, I had a tentative feeling that risk premiums could be a bit lower. Of course, there are always various elements working at the same time. But in nutshell, in my thinking, the risk premium is a matter which relates to level of interest rates, the euphoria moments in equity markets or big crises in equity markets, which give extra uh, boost or lowers the risk premiums. And then there could be growth elements or technological shifts in the market and investment boosts by governments, which could ex- give some extra growth in the economies. And of course, we are in the midst of those changes also, if one puts aside the geopolitical issues, we are seeing this green transition. We are seeing the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, heavy investments in, in the sector. So there are certain and technology shift with artificial intelligence. So, so there are certainly elements which are impacting the equity return possibilities. But all in all, these are the factors which I would see are impacting. When the rates are now starting point is that 4% risk-free, at least in the euro area, I feel that there is still the risk premiums left, but it could be a bit less than the historical averages when looking back. We haven't spoken too much about sustainability, so let's save the best to last, I suppose. You did say earlier that um, you don't aspire to be a leader or an outlier in in terms of ESG and sustainability. Why is that? I have thought that Sustainability is a quite challenging matter. We have been having a policy on sustainability topics since beginning, so over 20 years time already, but the evolution has been there. So we have absolutely had a, our own evolution, the similar way as any other institutional investor. First time we started with following which companies are in sustainability indices, then we started exclusions, Then we started tilting or looking at the positive factors. And now the last three years, we have been heavily putting emphasis on carbon intensity of the publicly listed equities and then publicly listed fixed income securities. And of course, working on the private ones also, but the data is missing still there. So public markets, we are now closely following. And then we have certain reduction goals, which we are accomplishing. And carbon intensity is is an excellent metric for a finance professional. It's something which we can measure, we can follow, we can set targets, and we can reach the targets. The question is that, does it save the world? 
and one can put a big question mark there. I think it's a transitory element. Uh, what we are, and I've discussed this openly with the team, that we have set these targets, what we have now internally, and we have published those targets. But I feel that in coming years, those targets needs to be altered somewhat. There could be new elements which we will be targeting and that the market in sustainability is developing. Then the last year or two, we have been looking at the price aligned indices and science based targets. And there also I have seen evolution. If I would have made decisions two years ago regarding those, I now in hindsight, I, I could have made wrong decisions. So I feel that one has to really go through a process to determine which are the wise decisions. And then we also want to be a, a small organization and we cannot have a huge team working on sustainability topics. So what we do, we need to be very focused and hopefully, of course, we want to do enough. And we have stated that openly that some of these targets, what we have currently regarding especially carbon intensity, whether we are reaching the goals and whether the, the world is reaching goals, it dependent on governmental policies and corporate actions towards corporate targets. Net zero is the target uh, for most of the corporations and, and also governments. And absolutely the key element for us would be to follow that these targets are reached and we are in the path towards net zero. I think that's the key, what we could do as an investor and then act based on that path. And as ESG evolves, um, particularly in other asset classes, do you see the scope and the ability to really have well-formulated policies in, say, government bonds, say, in private markets? Government bonds will be a, a challenging world and, and we have not touched that market yet. Remains to be seen. Only element is there that the, in developing markets we have introduced the ESG benchmark. But regarding private markets, I think we started internal discussions regarding real estate investments because we felt that that's the natural starting point because in terms of energy efficiency, absolutely the real estate market is playing the key role. So there we started. We have not put any specific goals related to that, but we know that our portfolio manager is absolutely discussing in every meeting with the managers how this they are progressing. So absolutely is in the agenda, even though we don't have it as a specific target. Regarding other private assets, private equity, private credit, it's more work which is under development. But then in infrastructure, we are one of the biggest investors to, together with two other pension funds in the domestic windmill uh, energy market and, and we have a large exposure on windmills in Finland. So I think we are also putting emphasis on positive investments in this energy transition. We have also done some investments in European level in a few of the funds with positive and challenging experiences. But still within infrastructure, I think this energy transition is one of the key themes for us. Timo, it's been a pleasure talking to you today and I'd like to thank you for your time in recording this podcast. 
But before we sign off, one more question, if I may. So your final blog of 2022 outlined a wish list for 2023. Have you started formulating a wish list for 2024? And what would be your advice to all of the investment committee members listening as they weigh up their priorities and assumptions for the coming periods? Regarding next year's wish list, I've not drafted that yet, but I must say that as we are so far into this year, and if I recall well, in my wish list for this year, there certainly were elements of geopolitics, there were elements of inflation, and there were elements of interest rates. Uh, some progress has been made on inflation and interest rates, but I would guess that these all of these three elements would be there for the next year also. Possibly, if I would need to add it now, I would possibly add some element of economical development being negative or positive and possibly even both elements. There are threats in terms of recession, but there are positive elements in terms of green transition for the future and technological innovation. So both of these elements are there. But let's see towards end of this year how I would formulate next year's wish list. Timo, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for listening to IPE Leaders and in Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To access all of the episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, where you can find us on leading podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, Please do tell friends and colleagues and let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today.